Amen. Would you please open up a Bible and find your way to the book of Haggai, or as we say, Haggai. Haggai, Haggai. I'll use those interchangeably. Haggai. Find your way to the book of Haggai. Journey with me as you turn to Haggai into the 6th century. As you are turning to Haggai, I want you to take note when you get there. Make a, make a stop in chapter 1, verse 1, and take a note how the book opens with the historical marker of the historic figure Darius. The ancients knew him as Doriahwesh, but that gets translated into Greek as Darius, which we just move over into English as Darius. Uh, so in any case, he is the king of Persia. So this dates around, his uh, reign dates around 522 to 486 in that range. 522 to 486, if you're taking notes, for Dor Yahweh Darius, B.C., that is. And Darius is known for putting a smackdown on the Babylonians and increasing the power of the Persian Empire from 522 to 486. Notice in chapter 1 that Haggai indicates that this this revelation that he brings to the people of Israel is taking place in those days of Darius, and he specifically notes that it's taking place in the second year of Darius the king. And so, as I said, 522 his reign begins, so if that is the second year, as Haggai uh, tells us, then that would place this text at 520 B.C. So in 520 B.C., God gave Haggai, the prophet, a series of four prophecies or four oracles where he is revealing himself to the world, the creator to creation, specifically to the creation of God's elect, God's people Israel. You see, in terms of world history, the Assyrians, the Babylonians at this point, they had wiped out the people of Israel, the Israelites. But in the promise of God, these temporary earthly powers were being used for an everlasting outcome in the earth. And so Assyria is gone, Babylon is gone in terms of their power, there's a new king in town uh, to be dealt with, Darius, and God uses Darius in his sovereign plan to actually bring the people who had been exiled out of the land of promise by foreign powers back into the land of promise. So as we are uh, open to the text of Haggai, we see the establishment of God's people in the land of promise bringing peace to the planet to usher in a new creation in which death and evil would be eradicated and ultimately a new earth and new life and the renewal of all things would come from the Creator through His elect people in the land of promise. The plan of God was that paradise lost would be restored in that land. It would come through that land and through that people and by God's promise as the people labored in love, as the people served the world, as a, as a priesthood in the fallen earth. So Israel's calling was to be a people in that place who operated as a, a, a priesthood. A priesthood mediates between creation and creator. That was their calling. That's why God promised to Abram that he would make his descendants into a people in the place of promise for purposes of being a priesthood that would bring this ultimate spiritual prosperity to all of the creation. Now, because of faithlessness, the priesthood was exiled from the land of promise. They did, not, they did not serve the calling that the Lord had given to them. And just as the father and mother of humanity was exiled from Eden when paradise was first lost, so too the people of promise were exiled from the place where paradise was to be restored. That place, of course, is a small piece of real estate that's like 290 miles long, about uh, 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 85 miles wide. It is situated in this area of the Middle East, 
along the eastern coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, bordered by modern Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Egypt. So as we're in Haggai, you want to orient yourself. We're in this special place, the place of promise. This, as you're looking at it in front of you and you're, you're thinking about this kind of land bridge, it, it joins Europe and Asia and Africa. This is a very significant place because major travel routes for international affairs would go through this area. Much like the major urban uh, centers of the world today, like London or Los Angeles or what have you, you bring together all kinds of people and you have this kind of a mixing pot of cultures and peoples going through that one place. And that one place, at that time, in the 500s, God is pouring out His grace on the fallen earth in that place. And as people gather and pass through that place, they will hear the message of His grace and His plan of redemption for Paradise Lost. It's a very strategic place in the world where the message of God would be spread around the world from those days to these days, from B.C. to A.D. And while moderns in our culture want to replace B.C. and A.D. with talk of B.C.E. and A.C.E., the so-called common era, the fact of the matter remains that the distinction between the common eras before and after isn't anything common, but something uncommon, indeed something extraordinary. Christ Jesus, Israel's Messiah, who came to fulfill the very promises that we are studying in this section of the Hebrew Bible in which we find ourselves this morning. He would be not only Israel's Messiah, but also the Savior of the nations. For he would invite the nations around Israel to come and to participate in this age, in this epoch, in this moment of time where we stand in between the time that is to come and the time that has come in the coming of the Messiah and the return of the Messiah. So we're in 520 B.C. We're, we're here with the people. The people have been brought out of exile. So this is known as a post-exilic text because it's, it's them coming back after exile. This people will be the people who will pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. They, they are laying the foundation for the, the, the temple that Herod would remodel, that Christ would walk through. The Christ would come and fulfill the promises that we are studying here in this text. The Christ would come and be rejected by the people. And in God's providence, he would usher in the program of the church in which we stand today in this A.D. Anno Domini in which we find ourselves, the year of the Lord. And we proclaim to the creation, as Israel proclaimed in this age of Haggai, that there was a priesthood, there was mediation between fallen creation and the Creator, that there was one coming who would fulfill and redeem the whole earth, we carry that message in this age saying the king has come and he is coming again. The early disciples of Jesus and the time of Jesus, they were waiting for these prophecies to be fulfilled. Namely, for the promise to Abram that his progeny would be in that place, fulfill that promise, and be that priesthood, and all of that would literally take place. At the time of Jesus, that's what they were waiting for. I think of Luke chapter 2, verse 25, where we read about Simeon, who was looking for the consolation of Israel. Jesus, after his life and his ministry, his death and resurrection, just before his ascension, when he gathered his disciples together in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they were asking, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to be restoring the kingdom to Israel? There were promises that God would bring his own kingdom to the earth, to that place, and through that place and that people, the renewal of all things would occur. 
And here comes Christ, Israel's Messiah, fulfilling these prophecies. And they're going, is it going to happen now? You've conquered the grave. Is it going to happen? And what does he say in the passage in front of you? Verse 7, it is not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So there is a time, there is an epoch in which that is going to take place when the kingdom of God will come. Jesus taught his disciples to pray just that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We are an eschatological community. We are waiting for eschaton. We are waiting for the end. We are waiting for the king to come. He has come and he's coming again. And we stand in between these times proclaiming to the earth, he is faithful. He is faithful. He will fulfill his promises. And our marching orders in this age as the, as the church, fixed by God's own authority, is that we will walk in the power of the Spirit and be witnesses from Jerusalem, from here, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth, proclaiming, the King has come. And we are longing for him to come. We are longing for him to fulfill all the promises that we are looking at. Now, in 520, 520 B.C., Haggai, the people were longing for those things as well. They're longing for the Messiah. They know the Davidic covenant. What is the Davidic covenant? 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which God promised that he would send this messianic figure through the line of David so, so he would have this everlasting kingdom that would go in perpetuity and this kingdom would bring this blessing to the earth. They know the Abrahamic covenant that I've been talking about, that God promised Abram that he would have this progeny in that place and there would be this prosperity. So they have these covenants. A covenant means a promise. And when God promises something, by golly, it's going to take place because he is faithful. Amen? He is faithful. So he promises Abrahamic covenant, people in that place, promise, prosperity, priesthood. He, he tells them that. Davidic covenant, the one who will come and accomplish these things will be from the seed of David. Now the people have been kicked out of the land, so you're wondering, is God faithful to his promises? What about what the father promised to Abram? What about what the father promised to David, David? When is this going to take place? And now with Darius, this pagan king, coming on the hills of Assyria and Babylon, he comes in and he tells the people, my, my beef's not with you, you guys can go back to the land. So then historically, we situate ourselves as we're jumping into this text, and these three broad waves that take place. They, they come in originally here. They come in with Zerubbabel in the first wave. There's a second wave that comes with Ezra. There's a third wave that comes with Nehemiah. We are going to be studying these texts, Ezra, Nehemiah. We're going to study Esther. And we are also studying the prophetic texts that overlap with these. So inside of the Hebrew Bible, you have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those are historical narratives that record the post-exilic community coming back. And then you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, uh, who are the prophetic genre of this, of this history, of these returns, of this post-exile community. After the Jewish people return back to the land of promise, they get into the land. Oh, happy day. This is great. God is faithful. He said he was going to do this. Look, it's happening. Yay! But it doesn't last long. You see, external drama comes. Foreign powers around them don't want them there. It's interesting that that's still the case today. The Middle East is, is just filled with tribes and territories of people who say, that's mine, and this is mine, and they fight over it. And that's just been going on all the, all the way through human history. 
Okay, so, so they're surrounded. There's enemies who want to kill them. On top of the external threats that they have, they have these internal dramas that are taking place. The people are fighting with each other. They're getting tribal. They're biting into each other. And so Haggai comes, and he has to drop the word on them and say, what are you guys doing? Do you understand this historic moment that we are in? Do you understand what God is doing? Do you understand what he's called us to be? He called us to be a, a priesthood to the fallen creation. The world is literally going to hell in a handbasket, and he has chosen to rescue us from that and use us as his mouthpiece, as his ministers, as his priesthood to tell the creation there's a way to escape from damnation. There is, there is a way out of hell. There is a way to heaven. There is a way to everlasting life. There is a new heavens and a new earth and resurrection from the dead. And if you would come to God and seek his forgiveness, he is mighty to save. He is a merciful God. And that was the calling of the people to proclaim this to the nations. But they get back into the land and they let the external drama and the internal drama take over. And so Haggai starts his prophecy. You have it in front of you. If you look at verse 4, for example, he starts talking about how they're hooking up their homes. They're going to Home Depot and Ikea and Crate and Barrel. They're settling into suburbia. And they stopped, you know, the project of the priesthood and the temple. They got comfortable. It is time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, he says, lies desolate. What is this house? It's the house of the temple. And to build the temple, they would have to face conflict. To build the temple, it would require sacrifice. To, to build anything of any significance requires that. You want to start a new company. You want to you know, build a career. You want to build a resume. That requires work. How much more then for the very temple of God, the, the, the porthole where the heavens would come into the earth and people would be able to encounter the presence of God that was lost when paradise was lost. This is going to require work. To be sure, it will be done by the Spirit's power, but they have been invited in as God's elect to carry out this work. But instead of laboring, they, they, they turn to bickering. In, instead of trusting God, they go toxic, and they start to fight with each other. And that brings me to the title of today's sermon, Pettiness and Purity. We see that the people were given over to pettiness in the book of Haggai. The, the, the pettiness or being petty, of course, uh, you, you're being selfish. When you're, a petty person is someone who is limited in terms of their, their scope of what's going on. Petty people aren't mindful of the big picture. They just get selfish and they get focused on you know, what they want in that moment. That, that's what it is to be petty. And so to Israel, they weren't mindful of this big picture. Paradise lost. Paradise being restored. What God promised to Abram, it's coming to pass. What God promised to David, oh my goodness, here, here we are. You know, Zerubbabel, I'll talk about this in today's message, is a descendant of David. And so you have a descendant of David bringing you back to the land? You have all of these promises and you're going back to the land? Don't you see what God is calling you to? Namely, to purity, to priesthood, to this program. But instead, they've given themselves over to pettiness. They are, as we would say in our culture today, idiomatically, they are putting on appearances. And that leads me to the first point on the outline, appearances. Last week, we left off in chapter 2, verse 9, and we are going to pick up where we left off at chapter 2, verse 10. As we see, Israel is putting on appearances. Israel is, per, you know, uh, just putting a face on it. 
Putting on appearances is when you pretend to be happy and you're really not happy. Or you pretend to be rich and you're really not rich. You know, you borrow someone else's car or whatever to, you know, take the girl to the prom. You know, you, you, you wear clothes that, you know, you, you've got the tags on and you're going to return them later. You know, uh, and you just hide that tag and, and you go back to Nordstrom's like, yeah, yeah, it didn't fit. You know, you're putting on appearances. You're trying to act like something that you're not. And we can do that uh, spiritually. You know, they talk about putting on a church face or whatever. You know, how's it going, brother? Praise the Lord. God is good. But inside, they're like, I hate myself, and I've sinned against my creator. You know, so don't put on appearances. You know, you want to keep it real. Let's jump into the text. Verse 10, chapter 2. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, Okay, let's, let's stop because there's a time stamp here. Uh, and, and this is not our first time stamp in Haggai. We have been given the time, time after time. In fact, this is the third time. It is also the third message in the book. Haggai, as I said, breaks down into four prophecies or four oracles. And each of them get a time stamp. So it's important to stop on the time stamp and make sure that we, we understand it. The first message in chapter 1 came on August the 29th, 520. In that first message, Haggai told the people, what are you guys doing? As we just, I just referenced to you, you know, you're building your houses, you're going to Crate and Barrel, you're not, you're not tending to the temple. What are you doing? That's the first oracle. The second oracle is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, which came about seven weeks or two months after the first oracle. And it's a rebuke. It's like, dude, I, I just was talking to you guys about this, and now you're doing it again. And so in the second oracle, he rebukes the bickering tribes who neglected to get on with building the temple. I told you on August the 29th to get on it, and now it's October the 17th, 520. What are you doing? Why aren't you on top of this? Now, I shared with you in last week's message that Haggai gave that second oracle in the middle of Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, Tents, or Booths. Uh, it, it's a holiday that's spread over a week. It's a holiday that's a part of the Shalash Relagim, which is a pilgrimage holiday where everyone travels to the temple. So the fact that this oracle is being given on a holy week in which people are supposed to be traveling to the temple is kind of a, you know, zinger for Haggai's revelation. Like, we can't even, we can't even do Sukkot because you guys won't even get on it and start building the temple. Like, what is the deal? During the pilgrimage, folks would stay in, inside of Sukkot, tents, and, and you would travel to the Holy Land. And so you'd walk, you know, and then you'd post up your tent, and you'd stay in the tent, and eventually you'd make it to Jerusalem. If you lived in the holy city of Jerusalem, you would, you would put a tent in your backyard or front yard or side yard or whatever, and you would stay outside of your regular dwelling and live inside of a tent for that week for Sukkot. And that tent was a reminder of what it was to be uh, outside of the land of promise. It's a reminder of Exodus when they were in the wilderness. It's a reminder of exile when they were put out of the land of promise. And we dwelled outdoors and we dwelled in tents. And to this day in the Jewish community, this is still a great celebration, the celebration of Sukkot, where we gather in these tents and we think about how God brought us from the place of wandering into the place of promise. So he gives that oracle on Sukkot, the time when you're supposed to be traveling to the temple, to drive home. Look, you guys. You're busy building everything else, your careers, your resumes, your relationships, and everything else, but you're not about the Father's business. 
those festivals that are woven into the Jewish calendar are actually uh, 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 prophetic reminders of how God has been faithful to the people. Haggai himself, his name means uh, festive one or the festival one. He's actually named after festives. Likely he was conceived or born during a festival. So no doubt he understands the significance of being given an oracle in the week of Sukkot, which we studied last week. Now, here we are in chapter 2, verse 10. And we see this third message, and it comes on the 24th of the ninth month, which corresponds to December 18th, 520. So here you have all the dates in the Jewish calendar, so you can take notes of these things. The ninth month in the Jewish calendar is known as Chislev, or Kislev. Uh, that's the ninth month, counting from Nisan. In rabbinic tradition, the ninth month is believed to be when the great flood of Noah subsided, the great deluge, when wrath subsided and a new era of peace and a new age had come. As well, the Jewish sages believed the Mishkan, or the tabernacle, was completed during Kislev. And so this is also significant, just as the last oracle in October the 17th, when they're midway in Sukkot, and everyone's supposed to be traveling to the temple, and y'all haven't built the temple, here, here we are in, in Kislev during the, the time when the tabernacle was finished, and, oh, yeah, you guys haven't finished the tabernacle, now have you? So Haggai is giving this message. These timestamps are significant to the original audience and should be for us as we're reminded of the festivals and the calendar, and the calendar itself reminds you of how, of how faithful God is, our calendars, say for, you know, the religious calendars that we have, our personal calendars ought to remind us of the faithfulness of God. Uh, today is my baby boy's birthday. Little Obi's birthday is today. And then Facebook pops a little something up, and I'm just reminded of how faithful God was in giving us this great gift of Obi that was unexpected, and how faithful God was, you know, in the whole delivery process. He was almost born in, in the backseat of the car. Uh, it was just coming out, and we we're like, oh my gosh, and it was so early in the morning, and God bless Katie, and we're just trying to get over to the hospital. And I'm just reminded, when I look at my own personal calendar, the birthdays of my kids, or, or markers, oh yeah, this is when I graduated, or this is when I went to work here, or whatever, you're reminded, man, God has been so faithful. And so, so the point of a community calendar is to remind you just of, of that. And so, kiss left, he comes the era when you think of a new age dawning, flood subsiding, wrath being lifted, tabernacles being finished, and he brings this oracle. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts. The Lord is bringing me revelation, Haggai says. And in this third oracle, I'm going to start by saying, where are my priests at? Bring me the priest. Ask now the priest. Bring me the priest. Verse 11, he asks the priest for a ruling. The prophet wants the priest. To, to come to him. The priests of Israel were a group of qualified men within the tribe of the Levites who had the responsibility over various aspects of the, the tabernacle or temple worship. The, all, all of the priests were Levites, according to the law, but not all Levites were priests. The priests were respected men. They were educated men. They knew the law of Moses. And so Haggai is going to raise a question about the law of Moses for them. In fact, here in, your, in, in our English translation, we have this for a ruling, call the priest for a ruling. In the original Hebrew text, for a ruling is just one word in Hebrew, and you'll know what this word is, Torah. Call the priests, it's Torah time. We're going to have some Bible trivia right now. We're going, to see, we're going to see if you guys know what the word has to say. Verse 12, draw your eyes at the text. 
He says, if a man carries holy meat in, in the fold of his garment, and he touches bread with his fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or some other food, will it, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no, no, it won't. Uh, now, let's pause on the question because it is, it's foreign. You know, have you ever been asked that one in a Bible trivia? You know, it's usually like, name the 12 disciples. You know, what's the seventh book of the Bible? You've probably never uh, had Bible trivia. Hey, so if uh, holy meat is in a fold and someone touches it, do they, do they turn holy? The priest emphatically answered the question, no. Now, recall, recall, the temple. The temple is the place of worship. The temple, it's a porthole from the heavens to the earth. The temple, it's, it's God's pad. It's where God lives. And recall that God's a holy God. Recall that creation is unholy. Creation is falling. Creation rebelled against God. Recall that the people are to be a priesthood. Priesthoods are mediators. Recall that that temple is a place where the, the profane in, encounter the sacred. And so the priests, as, as they serve in the temple, it's all about them being ritually, ceremonially, symbolically clean. And so the priests, recall what I've taught you about the mikvahot, or the, the mikvah, uh, baptism. The priests, before they serve in the temple, they would go and they would be baptized. They would be immersed in water to be ceremonially, symbolically clean, so that as they go in, in, into the temple there, Recall here, let me put a picture of the temple in front of you so you can recall. So as they, as they come up to the holy mountain, they come in here to serve, they would, they would undergo washing so that they would be ceremonially clean for the people. Being clean is important because you're a mediator. You're standing between holy God and unholy humanity. And so as the mediator, you, you have to be cleansed. And so they go through mikvah. They go through ceremonial washing. The, the ceremony of the washing isn't like doing anything. It's just a, an external sign and a reminder that before a holy God, we stand unclean. In fact, today after the service, we're having a mikvah. We're having a baptism. And we are going uh, to watch a, a young, a young uh, sister in our church proclaim to us that she believes God has saved her, that God has washed her, God has cleansed her. And we have this ceremony of washing where we go, oh, wow, look at, look at, look at what the holy God has done to bring that which is unholy into his presence, he, he washes us. So, so the priests, they would wash themselves. The priests are very concerned about their ceremonial cleanliness, their purity. And so you have the pettiness of the people, and to the pettiness of the people, Haggai calls for the priesthood and reminds them of their calling of purity with this question before us in verse 12. This is a big deal. We have to talk about uncleanliness. In a previous uh, message in this sermon series on, on the post-exilic text of the Bible, I shared with you the significance of the theology of sacrifice and how in sacrifice you have separation of, of life and death. Even in, the, even in the Torah, in what you can eat and what you can't eat and how you cook things, there's a separation of life and death. You, 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 don't, you don't cook meat in this particular way using that which is a symbol for life while you kill it because life and death, they're not intended to touch. And yet the wages of sin brings death and so there's, there, there is the profane and there is the pure and there is this holy God and the Torah, all that teaching, all that separating, to be holy is ultimately to be separate, to be set apart, to be different from the crowd, we might say. As parents, we've... When I teach our kids that, I want you to be different from the crowds. Don't, don't try to just settle into youth culture. Don't, don't mimic the fallen culture. I want you to be separate. I want you to be pure. I want you to be holy. In sacrifice, that's what, what happens. You have a, a herd of, 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 of 
lambs and, and, and you go and you take one and you separate it from the rest of the herd. And that lamb then is, is separated in the ritual of sacrifice where it gives its life in the place of guilt. The ceremony all pictures that. As you see something innocent dying, you're reminded that we are not innocent, that we are guilty, that we need something innocent to stand in our place. Holiness, being set apart. Okay, so here's the question. If, if you've got holy meat, right, and you, you, it's, tucked, it's tucked into the fold of your garment, I'll say something about what that's about in a second, and then someone touches the garment or it comes into contact with some other object, some other food that you're eating, does it make it kosher now? Can you take the sacred meat, you know, tuck it into your garment and then bump into a glorious bacon, you know, something that's unkosher, bump into a pig and go, I guess I can eat that bacon now. No, you can't. You can't. It, it doesn't transfer. The, they, they're right. The answer to the question is no. This appears to be a question from this text, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 27. You can read it while I'm up here explaining things. You see Leviticus 6.27 in front of you. So there's this section in Torah where the priest is, is set apart and the priest sets apart the sacrifice and the sacrifice, that meat, actually becomes consecrated. So there's a theology of transfer that's really important inside of the teachings of Moses and God's revelation to humanity where something that is unholy encounters something that is holy and the holiness of the holy thing can be transferred to the unholy. There's a, a theology of transfer. This is why, why the priest will sprinkle the blood on the altar. When there's the scapegoat, the priest will lay, lay his hands on the scapegoat, and there's a symbolic transfer of the, of the culpability of the people, of the transgressions of the tribes placed on the head of the scapegoat. There's a, a transfer. Okay, so now Haggai is talking about transfer. He's talking about the fold of the garment. No, normally, the sacrifices would be burnt on the altar in the temple. Or you see the altar in front of you. The priest would take the sacrifices of what was remaining, and they, they would eat them. They were clean. The priests were clean. And so they were able to eat what was left over. They would take it from the altar into the, a holy room inside of the temple. But recall, in 520 B.C., the temple is not standing. So what do we do with the meat that's left over from, from our offerings? What do, what do we do with these? Traditionally, the priests were the ones who would eat them, which was also a part of the ritual, because the sacrifice, the giving of its life, that's a sacred thing. We're not just going to let it rot on the ground. We're, we're going to eat this. And so they would eat it, but now there's not a temple, so they have to transport it. The carrying in the garment is like putting it in your pocket. Or if you're trying to bring the fanny pack back, right, it's throwing it inside of your fanny pack. In Leviticus chapter 17, there's instructions on handling leftover meat from the sacrifices, and it specifies that it was to be eaten after the sacrifice, but if for whatever reason, if your tummies couldn't take it all in or whatever, the priests were able to take that which was left over, and they had one day to finish it, or it would be burned with fire, Leviticus 17, 17, because it was sacred, it was special, it was to be consumed because the holy the holy transfer had taken place on that thing. So a priest might bring some home that's left over to his family. They go through a ritual of being cleansed or whatever, and, they, and they, they eat that, okay? They eat that. But what if on his way home, he starts bumping into things? Does, does the holiness then transfer by, by extension of the third party? 
Okay, the meat was made holy. Okay, it touched the garment. Now the garment is holy. But if the garment now holy touches something else, does, does the garment have these supernatural powers to be the third-party transfer of holiness? It is worth noting that many scholars here will spend time unpacking how this is an indictment. Because, look, look something's going on where you guys are taking meat away from the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 19, we read about how the priests were supposed to leave their priestly gowns in the sacred rooms inside of the temple. In fact, let me put the text in front of you so you can, you can see it here. Ezekiel 44, verse 19. The priests were supposed to leave their gowns in the temple because they had been washed, mikvah, they had gone through ceremony, there had been a transfer of holiness to, to their gowns, to, to them standing as mediators between holy God and unholy man. And so they were supposed to leave their gowns inside of the temple. So what is going on here, that what Haggai's dealing with, that you got dudes running around with, with priest gowns, talking about, you know, hey, we can just touch the gown and then we're going to be holy, we'll be kosher, we'll be cool. It seems that they were using this as a part of an excuse of why we don't need to be, build the temple. If the temple is the place where there's this transfer of, of holiness, this symbol of holiness, well, we got the priest's gown, you know, we could just touch his Versace shirt and we'll just get, we'll just cha-ching, we'll get that holiness transferred over. And Haggai goes, no, 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 you guys know the law, it doesn't work that way. Then he raises another question. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 13. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priests answered and said, it, it'll become unclean. So the Bible trivia continues, and they know the right answers, which is a part of exposing the pettiness of the people. You guys already know this. You're answering the questions rightly. There is a simple and yet profound matter with these two questions before us in this third oracle that, 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 that has come in that December of 520. The profound, the profound matter being raised is holiness comes by direct contact. The thing that encounters the holy is made holy. But that thing, by third degree, doesn't pass. Likewise, likewise, here's a profound point, unholiness is also passed by direct encounter. Unholiness is also passed by direct encounter. We, we think of what the scriptures teaches about, you know, uh, being in the company of the ungodly and how that has a way of rubbing off on you. Hanging out in the wrong crowd or whatever has a way of rubbing off on you. How, how the sins of others have a way of soiling and impacting you when, you, when you're in that place. And, and, and vice versa, just being in, in contact with holy people doesn't make you holy. I, I think of many people who think they're saved because their parents are Christians. Oh, you know, I was raised in the church. I'm good with God. I was raised in the church. I said the prayer. You know, we show up at church, you know, once a month, maybe a little less. But, you know, we're good people. It has been said that God has no grandchildren, only children. You can't ride on the heels of your parents a, a way to salvation. Because holiness comes by direct contact. And all of us by direct contact have been made unholy. So we need a direct contact, direct mediation with God for purposes of dealing with our unholiness. Haggai is exposing that their trust was not in direct contact in the temple, but their, their trust was on externals. They were trusting the gown of the priest to bump into them. They were trusting in things other than what God had given to them. We, we do that too. We can trust externals. We can trust external powers. We can trust uh, rituals. 
we, you know, even having a baptism today. You know, people might think, well, I'm good because I got baptized. No, that's not what baptism is. Baptism doesn't do anything to you. It symbolizes something that has already been done to you. Haggai is getting at that reality. Are you holy? Are you right before God? Or are you seeking after religious loopholes for not obeying what God has called you to do? You have been called to build the temple. And you're playing games with priest gowns. What are you guys doing? And then Haggai, verse 14, says to the people, So this people, verse 14, this, this people and this nation before me declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, of what they offer, it's unclean. That's a huge indictment. You guys are unclean, and everything you're touching, you're making unclean by direct contact of your uncleanliness. He's making a plea for their pettiness to stop, for them to obey God. Stop putting it off for tomorrow. Stop saying tomorrow, I'll stop looking at that. I'll stop drinking that. I'll stop eating that. I'll stop saying that. I'll stop thinking that. Tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. Stop now. You are unclean. If you persist, you keep making other things unclean. Just stop now. There's a way out for you. There's a way out for you. Cry out to God for forgiveness. Walk in his grace. Stop. He's called you to this. He's brought you to this place. You hear his voice. Stop putting it off for tomorrow. There is a saying that more people would learn from their mistakes if they weren't so busy denying them. Stop. Stop denying. You, you're unclean. You've made a mess. You've made mistakes. You were wrong. Father, forgive me. Father, forgive me. And by his grace and by his mercy, he gives you that. But if you persist in, 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 in ritual and external and excusing and postponing and the rest, you're, you're going to keep making the, the, the mess. And you're, you're going to be standing there with this call of God on your life. And it's not being brought to fruition because you are walking in your uncleanliness and you're just soiling everyone else with it. It reminds me of the teachings of Jesus when he encountered the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, let me put this in front of you. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside it's full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Transfer. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Haggai goes, you're, you're trusting outward things. You're trusting priestly garments. You're not building the temple. You're trying to get holiness by third party and not direct contact. You're, 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 you're doing this the wrong way. Inside of you is unclean, Haggai says. And there is one who by direct contact will cleanse you from the inside and that will transfer to the outside. Notice the language of the whitewashed tombs. Tombs were painted bright white, particularly around the festivals as, as, as travelers were coming for Shalash Relagim, like we talked about Sukkot to the area. You don't want to bump into a tomb because then you become ceremonially unclean and you're, by, the, by Torah, you're unclean for seven days, so you're to be separated from everyone else for seven days. I, I mean, it's like half of a COVID quarantine, right? And those aren't fun. So you're, you're going to be separated, and then you go through ritual to externally acknowledge that you have internally been cleansed by the holy God. 
Jesus says, you're like whitewashed sepulchers. Oh, they look all white on the outside, but they're full of dead men's bones on the inside. Woe to you, verse 29 of Matthew 23 in front of you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you build the tombs of the prophets, you adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Who, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So much for when people say things like, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. The church is so judgmental. Jesus didn't judge anyone. Have you read Jesus? He just called a big group serpents and vipers. Uh, that's highly offensive talk. I mean, uh, in particular in the Jewish context, those are unclean animals let alone they don't make for good pets, right? And he's talking about hell, and he's calling them hypocrites, and he's doing it in front of everyone. You know, he's, he, Jesus went post like that on Facebook. Oh, yeah, this is like the equivalent of a Facebook post. He's just going to town publicly. He's calling them out because they were, they were in the wrong. They were being petty. They weren't walking in purity. You look at this teaching. You, 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 you see Jesus calling it out. It's a parallel to Haggai. Haggai's doing the same thing. And he's using the same imagery, talking about touching a tomb. Here Jesus is doing the same thing, touching a tomb. You're ceremonially unclean. You look good on the outside. You're doing these externals. Everything looks fine. You got your priestly garbs. You're, you're looking fine. But I know on the inside, I know on the inside what's in there. And you know what's in there? What's in there has hell to pay for it. And that's not a popular message in our day when you start talking about hell and punishment from God. People like to think, no, no, you know, I think God's love, and, you know, he'll just, you know, whatever. And no, 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 like there's, there's a punishment for what we've done against God. Yes, God is love, but God is also, according to Scripture, he's a consuming fire. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. God's a consuming fire. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. We read, for our God is a consuming fire. Look at the sun. The sun is a consuming fire. Look at the sun. It's 93 million miles away from the earth. It's, it's far out there, and we still feel its heat. And you know if the earth were just a, a little bit closer to the sun in, in terms of if our axis tilted one way, or, 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 or if we were just a, a little closer to the sun, you, you move us just a little closer than, than this 93 you know, million miles, what's going to happen? Our faces are going to melt. You, you don't trifle with the sun. You don't trifle with God. There's a consequence that creation is rebelled against God, and that consequence is death and uncleanliness. And that sounds harsh. It, uh, Haggai just goes, you guys are unclean. And Jesus goes, you guys are hypocrites. And, and that sounds harsh. But notice what it's followed with. It's going to be followed with a call of grace and mercy. But before the call of grace and mercy comes, before the good news comes, the, 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 the word of God always brings the bad news. If, if, if we say, hey, you need to be saved, all right, that sounds good to me, but we don't tell you what you're being saved from or who you're being saved from. God himself, a holy God who will judge you for your sin. You need to know the actuality of, of what is at hand. The stakes are high. So quit playing appearances, and let's talk about actuality, which is the next point on the outline. Verse 15, he says, but now, but now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another, in the temple of the Lord. This is likely a reference to when they began to rebuild. They laid the cornerstone, the one stone, and they started to rebuild. But as we saw in our, our study of Ezra, the people started getting petty, 
and they stopped building. As we saw here in Haggai chapter 1, verse 4, they started going to Crate and Barrel and spending their time doing their own stuff or whatever while the, the temple was just sitting there. They laid a foundation. People started bickering. Oh, this, this foundation isn't as cool as Solomon's, and this and this and this and that. And then enemies were coming against them, and the government was making bad decisions, and they used all of that as an excuse not to gather and do God's work. In the verse that is before us, Haggai has told, told them, verse 14, you're unclean. In fact, when, when he says in verse 14, the, the people are unclean, notice that he says, this people. Ha'am ha'zeh. This people. Right? Hagoi ha'zeh. This nation. That, the, the, language, the language that God uses of, of his people is my people, my nation. And so, uh, again, there's, there's a harsh actuality that they need to see. The, the word that is used here for nation in the Hebrew is the word goy, goyim, which is a word for pagans. You pagan outsiders, like, what are you, what are you guys doing? God's dropping some, some hard words on them. Verse 16, from the time on when they... When one came to the grain of, of, of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the vine vat to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. Haggai is speaking God's judgment on their harvests. It's a horticultural society. They depend on their harvest not only for nutrition, but also for, you know, the dollar-dollar bill. That's how things work. So Haggai 1.6, look at Haggai 1.6. He says, you have sown much, but you harvest little. He who earns, Haggai 1.6, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. You, you guys, you're under the judgment of God. Look at how your nation is falling apart. Look at the land itself. It was tied to the covenant to Abram. Your society, your economy, look at it. The grain has been cut in half, verse 16 tells us. From 20 to 10, that's a 50% loss. That's huge. The vineyards had, had a 60% loss from 50 to 20. And God says, I did that. You guys aren't doing the work that has been given to you. you. You guys are coming unclean and making other things unclean. You guys are reaping this harvest, or lack thereof. Verse 17, I smote you, God says through Haggai, and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, hail, and yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. So here we see the next point. The actuality reveals the anger, the holy anger of the Lord. Verse 17 describes disastrous weather on the crops. There's blight, there's mildew. That's crop disease, which in the Hebrew Bible are linked to divine judgment for disobedience. There's hail. Hail is tied in the Hebrew Bible to judgment. It's God's, God's anger burning against their sins. Now, earlier I shared with you about the rabbinic tradition of Kislev being the, the, the ending of the great deluge, where we think about God's anger and judgment on creation for, for sin and violence. Anger is a real thing. Holiness is a real thing. God has every right to be angry at sin. Our problem, of course, isn't ultimately, I think, intuitively at least, with God's anger. Our problem is that we think that we aren't the objects of his anger. We like to think that we're not sinners. We like to make excuses. We like to cover. Like our, like our dad and our mom, Adam and Eve did, they covered themselves. We like to cover. We put on pretense. You've got gangrene on your leg and you just put some slacks on top of it, and you think your leg's going to be fine? That's not how that works. That's not how that works. But there is treatment. There is remedy. There is a balm in Gilead for those who come to him and seek him. God was patient with Israel. And so while we're reading of his anger, we are also reading of his patience. We also read of his love. Notice what verse 17 said. It talks about him wanting them to come back to him. 
I want you to come back to me. I want you to come back to me. And so you hear his, his, his anger, but you also must hear his love in the text. The Lord, we read in Numbers 14, 18, is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Again, God, God is being patient with them. He's brought them back to the land. It's, it's 520. He, he's brought them back to the land. He, he, he called them in Ezra to build this temple. They haven't been doing it. About two, two decades have passed, and you haven't gotten this done. Solomon built his temple in seven years. Like, what are you guys doing? Uh, he's being patient with them, but he's, al he's also being firm with them. He's being firm with them. This is wrong. This is not right. You, you guys are being called to build this temple. And so God in his love sends Haggai to the people. And God in his love sends Zerubbabel to the people. And God will, will send Zechariah and Malachi to the people to, to offer a hard word to them because he loves them. He cares about them. That's what a loving father does. I'm not going to let my kids play with fire and, and, and just sit back cool like, you know, I'm a loving dad. You know, I just love those little kids playing with those sharp knives and guns. <laughs> no, I'm going to yell at them and tell them not to do that and tell them to put that down. You, you, you're about to drink poison. I'm going to yell at you until you stop that right now and put that down because I love you. I'm going to tell you that. That's what a father does. A father brings discipline. The father of Israel, the God Almighty, is bringing his discipline to the people. The God of creation, who is father, son, and spirit, who, who, who promised to Abram, who didn't deserve it and didn't have it coming, that he would give him a progeny and they would go to that place and there would be that prosperity. And he promised to David, who also didn't have it coming, that he would bring one through him who would usher in the, the very kingdom of God. The promises that were given to, to, to bring in the ultimate mediator. You see, Israel was just a, a symbolic mediator, but to send the ultimate mediator, the father, and the sending of the son, who is a seed of Adam and Abram and David, who comes to the land of Israel. And he comes like Haggai, and he weeps because he loves the people. He is one of the people. This is a Jewish prophet. Our Messiah, our Savior, is a Jewish man. And he gathered there in Jerusalem, and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather you as children, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. In Haggai, the house is desolate. In Haggai, he says, the Lord wants you to come back to him, verse 17. He wants you to come back to them. Recall that, that, that this, this, this oracle is being offered in Kislev. It's a, it's a time when, the, temp, when, the, when the, the tabernacle was finished being built, and here they're being called to, to build the new tabernacle. Recall in the history of God's people Israel that subsequent to Haggai, there would come Hanukkah, the celebration of lights, where the, where the people would receive their temple and, and they would light the lampstand. Recall that Jesus himself would go into the temple during Hanukkah, and he would say, I am the light of the world. I am Hanukkah. I am the fulfillment of all the, the festivals. I am the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the flesh. I am a mediator, not a symbolic one, a real one who has come. And Jesus would go to the temple and cleanse the temple. He would wail over Jerusalem. And Haggai is doing just the same. This continued on for hundreds of years, all the way up to the time of Christ. So we see God's anger, but see his patience, see his love. See the application of the prophet in the text. Verse 18, do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, and from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, considered, is the seed still in the barn? 
even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, it has not borne fruit, yet from on I will bless you. See, Haggai is a gospel preacher. He brings the law to them. You're unclean. You, you deserve death. You deserve damnation. You deserve it all. But then he brings them good news and says, God will bless you. In spite of yourselves, God will bless you. And we are, we are reminded hearing this message that that's exactly the case with our lives. Dear brother, dear sister in Christ, if you have come to God and you have acknowledged that you are unclean and you have received this immediate transfer of holiness to your account from this God, you, you know his blessings. And you know his blessings come to you at moments in your life. If you've lived long, if you've lived long, if you've walked with the Lord, if you've worshipped and walked with the Lord for some time, you know he blesses you when you, when you didn't deserve it. You know that. Your salvation is that. You didn't deserve to be saved. You didn't. You, you, you did nothing to, to get that. He gave that to you. That's why we call it gospel. That's why we call it good news. That's why we call it a gift. And so here they are in Kislev. Notice that this, this is the fourth oracle that we have encountered here in the text in verse 18. And he gives the same uh, date. It's December 18th, 520. And he's given them a clean slate. On the same day of the third oracle that dropped the bomb of their uncleanliness and, and their harvest being jacked and all the rest, on the same day, the prophet turns around with the word of the Lord saying, I am going to bless you. From this day onward, there is mercy that will come to you. That is an invitation we all need to hear. We must realize that like Israel, we stand condemned. We, 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 we in this age, have a temple that we've been called to build. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks of believers as living stones building a spiritual house. The Apostle Paul uses the same language to talk about the ministry of the church in this age. We have been called to build the temple of God. The temple of God is built by the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Spirit. We preach Christ and people get saved and that's what we call building the temple in this age. Haggai reminds us that this work happens not by might, not, not by our power, but by the Spirit. Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 6 says exactly that. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. Are we about the Father's business, Delray Church? Are, are we spending our time building His temple? Are we given over to pettiness and impurity and excuses and whatnot? A.W. Tozer once said that if God were to take the Holy Spirit out, out, of, the, out of our churches, they would just keep going on right on and no one would know the difference which is a way of saying that we're not walking in the spirit we're not relying on his power we're not desperate from him we're not about the father's business we have our songs and our cliches we talk about Jesus take the wheel but we're still backseat drivers trying to tell him what to do I shared with you in last week's message my, my concern pastorally in this moment this sort of uh, 2021 moment and the things that have gone through just in terms of politics and COVID and, and, and Afghanistan and the rest. And just looking back, we just, you know, weekend passed. We had the anniversary of September 11th. And I remember when September 11th happened. I remember that Sunday, the churches were full. The churches were full. People were coming in and they wanted to hear about the Lord. And the churches were preaching the Lord. And there was revivals happening around that time. And this time I look at it and I, I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing churches divided. I'm, see, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing pastors fighting pastors. I'm seeing believers fighting believers and turning on one another. I'm going, what is going on? Hear the words of the prophets in the days of old that, that echo out into our day. Build the temple. 
build the temple. Lay down pettiness, walk in purity, build the temple. The temple was all, 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 and the law and all that were just a shadow to teach the people of what was to come. Hebrews chapter 10, we read that the law was just a shadow of good things to come. The very form of the things that you can never see by the same sacrifices which were, which were offered up. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. It, Hebrews chapter 10 in front of you, he, he tells the people, those sacrifices were a reminder of our sins year by year. Verse 4, Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The temple was a picture. The temple was a picture. Like mikvah was a picture of washing. Like baptism that we're going to see after the service today is a picture of washing. It's all pointing to something that by way of direct contact with the holy God, you can be made holy because of his mercy. And Haggai is pointing to them to this. Look, we get to build this temple. This temple is going to be this really special thing. This temple where sacrifice and all the rest is taking place. Look at, look at Hebrews in front of you, chapter 10, verse 5. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And the whole burnt of the offerings, the sacrifices of sin, you take no pleasure in them. Behold, I, I, I have come to do your will. After saying the above, the sacrifices and the offerings and the whole burnt offerings, the sacrifices for, for, for sin, you haven't desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. This will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Every priest stands ministering and offering time after time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But we, having offered one sacrifice for sin all for time in Christ, who has sat down at the right hand of God, who we are waiting on from this day forward, when he is to return, Hebrews tells us, verse 13 of chapter 10, He's to return, and his enemies will be made a footstool at his feet. Haggai speaks similarly of the coming of the Lord and of enemies and wickedness and evil all being put to a halt. Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. I can imagine that at this point, when the word of the Lord is coming again, this, would, this is the scary moment for a prophet. Because often the prophets are like, Hear, O Israel, God has got a word. You know, and then you know, is like preaching to the people, and then God goes, and you, Isaiah, or, you know, you, Ezekiel, I got a word for you, too. So then the word of the Lord comes again. You can imagine Haggai like, oh, no, it's about to be my turn. He's about to go off on me. On the 24th day of the month, saying, that same time marker, you see, speak, verse 21, to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Oh, no, Zerubbabel is kind of coming. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. Phew, Zerubbabel. God tells Zerubbabel, there's chaos in the world, but I have your back. We had Hebrews in front of us a moment ago. Hebrews chapter 10 goes on. Chapter 12, verse 28, there's a great line. Therefore, we must be thankful that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Zerubbabel, listen. Things are chaotic. The people aren't listening. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. There's nations, there's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's violence, there's craziness. The government is corrupt. There's internal conflict. But listen, I am going to have my way, God says. And I believe that in a time like this, as we see rumors of war, we see what's going on in Afghanistan, we see madness on our, our home front, we see just shootings in Chicago, craziness in Los Angeles, violence, corrupt powers. Allegan County this week is threatening to remove children from homes over VAC stuff. I'm like, are you serious? 
Our government has lost its mind. The nations have lost their minds. We are surrounded by chaos. Our own hearts are petty and conflicted. We need to hear from God that he is going to have his way, that he is going to save us, that he will rescue a people for himself. That's what we need to hear. I will overthrow, verse 22, the chariots and the riders and the horses and their riders, they will go down, everyone with the sword of another. God was on Haggai's side. And the sword cuts both ways. So we're reminded that but by his grace, the sword would swing at us. And that takes away pettiness. That takes away pettiness. Petty people are hard to live with because petty people focus on trivial matters. Petty people have a tendency to seek revenge for the slightest of offenses. You could do 100 things for petty people, and they'll just remember the one thing that you didn't do. Petty people ripple through communities. Petty people have a way, and, and they get focused on one thing. And, and, and then they, 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 they posture themselves in the right position on it. But the, the, the law of God levels us all. And we go, oh, uh, yeah, we would be on the enemy's side, but by his grace in rescuing us. Verse 23, and on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What a word for Zerubbabel. He'd been laboring for 16 years or so, telling the people, we have to build the temple. They're like, yeah, it's a good sermon today, good sermon. You know, they're not building the temple. Hey, we need to build the temple. Yeah, yeah. Then Haggai comes, I got a word from the Lord, oh boy, and it just drops this bomb on Zerubbabel and the people, and God's upset with them, and, and yet the prophecy ends with all this love and all this grace and this promise of a signet ring. What's a signet ring? It has a design raised to it, a signet ring, right? There's a, there's a regular ring, and then signet rings have a divine, have a, a, an uplifted design to them. And the uplifting of a, of a signet ring is for purposes of pounding it down in clay and wax and whatnot, because it, it, it's a royal ring. It's a symbol of authority. So God promises to Zerubbabel that he's going to put him in a position of royal authority, that he's going to, give, he's going to raise up one like a signet ring to be raised up. He's going to raise up a descendant to Zerubbabel. Recall who Zerubbabel is. I shared with you, he's a descendant of David. Recall the Davidic covenant. You saw this already earlier in the PowerPoint. What's the Davidic covenant? So here's the historic thing. The Lord promises to David that his dynasty would endure, 2 Samuel chapter 7, but that hadn't been fulfilled. And now God's bringing them back into the land. Zerubbabel is, is, is a, a descendant of David. And you're going to go, whoa, what, what's happening? What's going on here? Are, are we going to see the kingdom to come? Are, they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. They're, you know, is this, is this when this is going to happen? And God speaks, my promise is still binding. And Zerubbabel, I'm reversing things for you. Here's what you need to understand. There was a curse that was placed on Zerubbabel's line. You can read about this in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. There was a curse on uh, Jeconiah. Jeconiah had a curse on him. Jecho was a king of Judah who, get, who got deported under Babylon, and he walked in sin. And in Jeremiah 22, we read about the curse of Jeconiah. Scholars note that the first, first the Lord likens the king to a signet ring here in Haggai, a ring that God will pull off. And then God pronounces, in this Jeremiah context, this curse upon the descendant by the taking off of the, of the signet ring in Jeremiah. And here Haggai comes and says, no, no, no. God's putting the signet ring back on. And through your line, through Jeconiah's line, I'm going to raise up the one who's going to accomplish all this. 
I'm reversing the curse on your life, Haggai says to him, if I lost you. God says, I'm reversing the curse. I'm saving you. I'm giving you something you don't deserve. I'm, I'm going to reverse this curse. And then we come in the Gospel accounts. We read in the Gospel of Matthew. We read in the Gospel of Luke, the, the, the genealogies of Jesus. And who's in, who's in them? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's in Matthew 1.12 and Luke 3.27. In fact, Jeconiah, the curse is reversed. And actually through his seed, you have the Messiah who reverses the curse over us all. It's so beautiful. Paul would speak in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, of the descendant of David according to the flesh. This one who was come in Jewish flesh to redeem his people Israel. The one who came knowing they wouldn't hear him, but he came anyway and he cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. His body, let's take the cup. His body made flesh. As we look at, as we, we look at this piece of bread, we are reminded of his incarnation. We are reminded that he is in the flesh of Jeconiah and Zerubbabel and David and Abram. We are reminded that that flesh was the people of promise. And so that sacrifice that was done, that separation, wherein we have direct contact. Remember Haggai, the thing that touches the thing that's clean is made clean? Yep. And we have been made clean by the body of the one broken for us. Let's eat. I shared with you a bit about the theology of transfer, of the unclean touching the clean and being made clean. This is what we call impartation, where, where, where God, by His grace, gives us what we do not have, gives us something that's alien and foreign to us, and He gives that to us. We see the Christ who came, the Christ who came to this people in that place and fulfilling that promise and inviting to us to be included into these promises and giving to us that which we do not have. Righteousness. The great reformer uh, Martin Luther spoke of the wondrous exchange, the great exchange where the righteous one would give the unrighteous one his own righteousness. Before we drink the cup, muse on the words of the, of the great reformer Luther, that is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's. And the righteousness of, of Christ is not Christ's but ours. He emptied himself of his righteousness that, that, that he might clothe us, clothe us with him and fill us with it. He has taken our evil upon himself that he might deliver us from them in the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins he, he was confounded. In the same manner, we rejoice and glory in His righteousness. As we drink the cup, think of the transfer that has been done by His blood. The symbol of blood reminds us of death. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death. We deserve punishment. He's a loving Father. He has come to rescue us. This morning, He has come to rescue you. This morning, he has come to reverse the curse that sin has brought upon you. If you would, if you would lay down sin and, and, and pettiness, brokenness, wickedness, just lay it down and say, Father, I want that new day that Haggai spoke about. I don't want to put it off for another day. Father, rescue me from myself. Rescue me from my sin. Dear listener, he is mighty to save and gracious to do so here and now cry out to him. We are going to cry out to him now in song. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing two songs and then we'll 
go outside that we can witness a baptism and be reminded of his washing, his gracious washing for us. Thank you for uh, listening today. Haggai's a wrap. Next week, Zechariah, we'll keep going, studying the faithfulness of God in the face of our unfaithfulness. Let's worship him. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. That while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. That he would exchange his own righteousness in the place of our unrighteousness. That he would make that which is unclean clean by direct contact with him by the Spirit through the washing and regeneration that the Spirit brings deep within the hearts of sinners to give us new life. Lord, as we think of the, the, the cloth of the, of the priest coming into contact with the, the consecrated sacrifice, we think of the clothing that we have now in Christ, the naked, the naked children of Adam and Eve being clothed in Christ. And by, by his clothing, we are made clean. Direct contact with you, O oh Father, that we have by your Son. May all who hear this word this day uh, trust him for this great gift. May we not rely on external ritual. May we not rely on third-party transfer of holiness, but have direct contact with you here this day and be purified by your grace and for your purposes. Receive these songs of worship. We know that you have saved us for the purpose of your praise, and so now it is appropriate that we sing to you, for you are worthy to be sung to. You are worthy to be adored and worshipped above all things. Have your way with us in this time of song, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.